0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Betting People. This week's special guest will be a familiar face to many of you because you will have seen him on Sky Sports Racing. I am, of course, talking about Tim Carroll. Tim, how are you? And thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, William.
0: Let's get straight into it with a question that many people would have been dying to ask you. Um, so we actually asked for questions on Twitter, and I think this summed it up pretty well. Patrick here, Patrick Hayes, whose question should be on the screen, asks, how many lengths would Frankel have beaten Winx by? Now, he's given a scenario, to be fair to him, 10 furlongs at York on good to soft ground. Tim, take it away.
1: Well, firstly, Patrick's been a little bit presumptive. He used to say Frankel would have beaten Winx. But um, look, in all seriousness, if you're talking about the Jugmont at, at York, where he was hugely impressive, I think he had, was it St Nicholas Abbey, seven lengths in behind that day. Um, yeah. I'll be honest, uh, Frank Hall live is the best horse I've ever seen. Um, so I would agree that he would have beaten Winx that day. Not so sure about the champion stakes, but he would have beaten it that day. Um, but she would have finished a lot closer than the others. So we've, we've actually got a fairly good gauge there. And I, I'm being very basic here, you're talking about proximity, but for argument's sake, you had a horse like So You Think, uh, who was also from Australia and she's a better horse than So You Think. Um, so You Think had also defeated or finished in front of Nathaniel, he didn't actually win the race. Uh, not Nathaniel, sorry, St Nicholas Abbey um had finished in front of him and also had, had beaten the far so i think chances are that the winks would have given him some sort of race but yeah, you know, we are talking about frankel who many would say is the, the greatest horse ever
0: uh, very fair indeed um just as an interesting thing um where do you get the idea that winks and i'm not saying that it isn't correct among the ratings it is but you seem very confident there that um, Winx was much much better than the, So You Think. So You Think was a very very good horse both in Australia and when moved to Ireland. Any reason behind that um, confidence in your thinking?
1: Yeah well look I, I think she, firstly she was more versatile, you've got to remember she ran peak figures over you know six and a half furlongs to ten furlongs. Um, her her overall, if we're talking about time form, I think he went to 133, she went to 134, with bullet, I mean, she could have gone higher plus she would have had a mayor's allowance. But I'll tell you a little story very quickly, actually. I was doing a show called World of Racing for, back then it was ATR and I was in Australia recording the show and two of our guests were Chris Waller and, and Hugh Bowman. Now, just so I can set this up so you understand, Hugh's uh, very much a country boy. He is definitely not overstated, uh, not too much phases him. And I, I said to Hugh, look, there's all this debate in Europe, how the wigs went over there and took on the Europeans, took on a, a able, which he be Wichita beat." Beat those sort of horses. I said, you'd have a pretty good idea. What a, what a lot of people don't realize is Hugh's the only person to have ridden So You Think and Winks. Mm. And I said to Hugh, you know, you'd have a pretty good idea having ridden uh, So You Think and Winks. And honestly, he just looked at me blankly for a second and then and exact words, I promise you, he said, Oh, she'd beat So You Think hands down. Now I think Hugh would have a pretty good idea, which was the, the better horse. Having said that, that's not a knock on so you think I mean to win 10 group ones five in each hemisphere and he had a fairly audacious campaign that Penultimate uh, campaign speaks for itself. But if you look at it from an Australian point of view, I think most people in Australia would say Winx was a superior horse to say you think.
0: And just looking for an Australian point of view again. Um, how do the Australian racing community perceive, um, so you think, campaigning, which was um, a point of contention around that time um, when he was with Aidan O'Brien?
1: Yeah, well, I think Bart Cummings, his previous trainer, and, and Bart's a Hall of Fame trainer. I actually uh, wrote a bit of work for Bart back in the day, and, and the man's a genius, so he should be respected. But there's no doubt Bart was not overly impressed with losing the horse I think it sort of all happened you know not I wouldn't say secretly that's the wrong way to say it, but it all happened very suddenly um, and Bart was a little bit sort of "Oh, they're training this horse upside down which is a little bit unfair because as, as an Australian based over here I know that there's different considerations over here but I do think that penultimate campaign certainly the second half of it, the winter you know, the wheels fell off a little when I want to say the wheels fell off they've got a lot of considerations Coolmore and and they ended up sending him to the arc now you've got to remember he was a very speedy horseback i remember him being beaten in a group one mile because he, he went too quick from the front wearing blinkers um i think to go from sort of being this sort of mile to a mile and a quarter horse and having to step up to the arc where they lightened him off as eight O'Brien, brian you know himself said back to champions day where he got beaten and he looked just a little bit flat he looked like a, a 12 furlong horse in a 10 furlong race and then to go over to the breeders to go onto the dirt. Now I'm assuming he went on to the dirt because they had St. Nicholas Abbey for the turf. Now he just finished in front of St. Nick in the, in the arc quite uh, yes. having a, a you know a, a worse race setup. I think that's why they went to the dirt and, and they put the blinkers on and he, he took a tug like he did in Australia when they put the blinkers on. So I think it, it all went a little bit skew-wiff. And I, I think you know, a lot of people would think that he could have had a, a better record if maybe campaigned a little bit differently. But to be fair, To Aidan O'Brien, I remember I was at Royal Ascot the following year when he came back and he won before he was retired and Aidan sat down at the presser and he said, look, I had a good chat to Joseph who was riding him out and Joseph said, look, we've got to change his, his, his training regime, we've got to lighten up on this horse and just let him be a racehorse again because he was very bullish as a younger horse. And that, that seemed to help, and I mean, it might have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but he sort of threw out a few apologies to Bart Cummings and, and, and yeah, anyone else that was a, a, you know, a little bit concerned about the previous campaign, but he sort of said, you know, like, it, we probably didn't train the horse the right way. I do remember him actually saying, it might have been at that presser so that the work he put into him before the ARC, a lesser horse wouldn't have even survived mm-hmm. the, the work regime. So... Yeah, to, look, to answer your question, I, I, I think there's a lot of considerations that, you know, the, the average person, especially in Australia, that's not familiar with the, the setup over here doesn't have. But yes, yeah, so I think in hindsight, they might have done things a bit differently.
0: Indeed. Um, and just going back right to the start, um, how did you get into racing?
1: Um, well, look, I actually went through the betting side to start with. My grandparents were uh, slightly illegal SP bookmakers uh, in Melbourne. <laughs> they used to run a, a shop out the back of the house, uh, which was fairly active on Saturdays. And I had my—I was allowed to have my first bet. I think I was around seven years of age on Battle Heights when he won the, the Cox Play a good old uh, campaigner from New Zealand. I was allowed to have that bet through family. I didn't walk down to the betting shop and put it on, obviously. Um, and after that, uh, I was hooked. Uh, when I went to school, I used to run a little bit of a book on the, on the rugby league, the NRL over there, I think it was called ARL back then, um, the idea of trying to take everyone's pocket money, and, and mostly it was fairly successful, um, and I always enjoyed sport, I was always on the small side back then, it's before I kind of filled out a bit. Um, and I, I'd always ridden horses because I grew up in the country in a place called Armadale. And while we lived in town, a lot of my friends that I went to school with, their are families own property. So you, you'd go out horse riding and motorbike riding, do all the things that rural kids do. Um, so I, I decided to go and be a jockey because I loved the game. I could ride horses. And at the time, I was small. So it sort of went from
0: there. Must ask, your best and worst ride as a jockey? All in European, of course. (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, okay. Well, the one that annoys me the most is, uh, I I remember in New Zealand horse called Brook O'Twile. And and what had happened on the day, I was riding in a place called Brockhampton, which is a provincial area, uh, that's got a really strong racing base. And they'd had a lot of rain there. And I'd ridden the turf track a few times. I'd never, they had an inside track, a sand track. And because of the rain, they'd moved the races onto the sand. I'd never ridden it. It was a tight turning track, like those little dirt tracks you see in America. And I rode this horse and normally sat forward, I'd ridden him a couple of times before, and um, as we came to the bend, I mean, normally you'd sort of make your move as you straighten up, let them balance up a little bit. I had a fair bit of horse underneath me, but he was a bit, not that he had his ability, but he was a bit like Hyland real in that he was just a, a relentless type galloper, he wasn't a, a sit and sprint horse, he wouldn't go 0 to 100 in, you know, points per second. Um, And there was a a jockey there, one of the best uh, actually one of the best jockeys I've ever seen uh, that no one would have heard of because he was happy being a a big fish in a small pond, Wally Welburn. And all of a sudden, he flew past me on this horse on the outside and I had to get going and chase him. And I got beaten literally that far. And um, I came back and no one said anything. They they, they were quite happy with the run and everything. I was fuming because I I knew Wally had just outridden me. I I got caught napping, so to speak. In my defence, I didn't know the track, but... Look, it was just one of those one of those races that I knew I should have won. So needless to say, six months later, I was I was still sort of maybe not having nightmares about it, but I was still dirty on myself because I was very competitive. Still am, to be fair, but I was very competitive back then. I'd have a bit of a sulk if I got beaten. I, I knew I shouldn't have. As far as my best day goes, I mean, keep it in mind, I, you know, I'm not riding more of Frankie De Tori. I wasn't around for too long. I wasn't riding in the, you know, in the Melbourne Cup and things like that. But... One of the first days I rode, and I, I know you've got a time limit here, so I'll speed this up, but I, I went to an invitational meeting out in the country and I rode a double, actually. Mm. And after the, after riding a double, I think I had five rides for two winners in the other three places. So it was a nice little day out. And afterwards, you, you go and join the connections in the bar, actually, of all places. That's just the way it was those days. And the the owner was, um, actually he owned pubs, but his main thing, he had a big farm the size of a county, basically. And anyone would have thought I'd, I'd won the Derby or the Melbourne Cup for him. I, and this was just a little country meeting. I actually wrote two winners for him, both winners for him. I found out later that he, he'd he always had at least one horse in work and hadn't had a winner for 10 years. So to him, this whole thing was magical. And just for a moment there, I, I kind of felt, I, I don't know, I just felt like Frankie de having having won the Derby or something like that. But I was just so pleased for the owners. That that kind of meant more to me than, than, than the win itself you know, for for me, and, and yeah, you know, it, it's sort of days like that when you, you sit here as an older man and, you, you know, you're a bit overweight and that, it's those sort of days you look back on that, that sort of bring you the fondest
0: memories. Um, absolutely. Um, out of interest, was there any other sport that you played? Was the plan always to be a jockey or did it come through sort of chance? Um, I mean, you your parents did run uh, a bookmaking shop of their own, um, but... Were you interested in, say, NFL or sorry AFL, I should say, or something like that? Uh,
1: rugby League. I played juniors for what was known as East, now the Sydney Roosters. I'm still a member there. Um, I, I played league. I played cricket to a reasonable level, both but, but to be honest with you, I just wasn't good enough to make a career out of it. I was always on the small side. I mean, even when I was a jockey, I was still playing rugby league. I'd rather win her on a Saturday and mm. try, or a try on a on a Sunday, um, but the honest truth is I wasn't good enough. They would have been two games away from horse racing that I would have liked to have excelled at if I had that sort of ability.
0: Okay, Derek. and just to sort of round this all up, um, you moved to racing media in, I believe it was the early 1990s. How did that come about?
1: I was very lucky, I was in the right place at the right time. I'd I'd given away riding, I was at a little bit of a loose end. I I decided I didn't want to go into training because I just thought it was too risky. I'd seen too many good people who knew what they were doing, that worked hard, that never made it. Um, I ran a sports centre for an owner that I'd ridden for for about 18 months, and 18 months into that, uh, another ex-owner I used to ride for, he was the general manager of a radio station that was purely aimed at mostly horse racing, actually, but it's horse racing slash sport. He knew my background, he, he said to me, Tim, I, he said, I, I think you've got a really good voice for radio, which I suppose was a compliment, but, you know, it might have been a, a way of saying but you know, you haven't really got a face for TV, but we'd like to offer you a traineeship. Um, and to be fair, the traineeship wasn't worth a, a lot of money. It was a fair bit less than what I was earning at the time. And it was a two-year traineeship. So I said to Ted, um, can we cut the traineeship back to a year? And if I'm good enough after a year, I am. And if I'm not, I'm not. And he agreed to that. So... I went and did it, and I, I, everything just fell into place. There was two main presenters, and one actually left to, to go on to bigger and better things, and the other one had a big fallout with, with the boss, with uh, Ted. So within three months, I was kind of the, the head presenter. So I sort of had to learn as I went. I mean, I obviously knew the product, but I had to learn how to, how to present, and it was a really good, a, a really good grounding, and it, it just kind of grew from there.
0: Um, would there be any particular lessons from that time that you really feel made you into sort of the presenter you are today?
1: Yeah, I think so. I, again, I was lucky because, uh, you know, I was playing in a, in a small pond again. So I, I was, you know, you can't be as raw as what I was and go straight on the Sky Sports Racing, say. Um, so the, the thing that I learned very quickly, two, two things actually, uh, I, to this day. Firstly, Know your topic. Know what you're talking about. If you ever go into air, be armed with all the information you can possibly have. And the second thing is have plenty of conviction in what you're saying. Don't don't be iffy, Don't be shy. It doesn't matter whether you, you know whether you're talking to Aidan O'Brien, whether you're talking to Brian Moore, whether you're talking to some owner that no one's ever heard of. Have conviction in what you're saying. And if you know you if you know what you're talking about, or you believe you know what you're talking about, then you you fully justifiable to have that conviction. I mean, I, I quite often, I'll, I'll interview a trainer or a jockey. Now I'm not saying I do, but I like to go into that interview feeling I know more about the form of the horse we're talking about than they do. Now it's probably not the case. Um, and obviously they'd know all the idiosyncrasies of, of having that horse 24 seven in the yard, but that's the way you should feel when you go into to, to an interview or when you present.
0: And as somebody who's in the racing media, would you have any advice for somebody looking to follow in your footsteps or to break into any part of it, uh, written online or um, maybe in front of cameras you have done? I think you've got to be persistent. Um, it's a difficult industry to break into simply
1: because uh, if, if, you, if you're working in racing media, I mean, I don't know too many people working in racing media that don't love racing. And if you don't love racing, you, you shouldn't work in the industry for your own sake. Um, so the majority of people are, are doing it. They're are all hooked on what they're doing. And it, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, whether it be writing or whether it be like I do presenting, um, if you can get paid to talk about something you love, that's a pretty good gig. So it is difficult to get in. But having said that, if you're persistent enough and you approach it the right way, I mean, don't just give up because two or three doors close. Um, you will get in and once you get in well it's like anything you've got to work hard you've got to listen try to learn as much as you can and then and hopefully go from there I look I never did it I've never done media training not a day of it in my whole entire life but if you really want to get into media especially today because it's very cutthroat um, if you want to get into racing media I would recommend to any young person out there certainly go and do some sort of media training if you can
0: I think a very very sensible note upon which to end part one of betting people with Tim Carroll Stay tuned for part two tomorrow. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thanks William. Hello and welcome back to part two of Betting People with Tim Carroll. Now we started part one with a question that you sent in from Twitter and we're going to do the same for part two because Tom Wilson has got in touch and it's a very good question actually which I've been pondering. What's the main difference between the betting culture, analysis, and approaches between Hong Kong and the UK and Ireland? He would be interested in the factors and methodologies most valued in Hong Kong as opposed to over here. Um, that's a great question, I think, from Tom Wilson. So, Tim, please take it away.
1: Yeah, it is a very good question. I think Hong Kong is far more data-driven, and that's from the top to the bottom. Now, by that, I mean if you if you go to the races in Hong Kong, Happy Valley is a little bit different. It's got a bit of a social atmosphere because a lot of people pour in after work, but. But overall, especially if you head out to Sha Tin, everyone's there trying to make money. Uh, to, give a, to give you a, a comparison, I suppose over here, it's far more social. If you, if you go to the races over here, sure, there's people there that are trying to make money and even people that are there for a social occasion probably would like to see their bets winning rather than losing. But it does have a, a far more social feel to it. Whereas in Hong Kong, at Sha Tin, you never see anyone running around with a beer in their hand. They're all running around with a form guide, their pens and their, and their notes. Um, Then at the sort of higher levels, when I say the higher levels, the more professional people over there, um, it is very much data-driven. There's people working off um, algorithms. Uh, If you go back to Bill Benton days, 20-odd years ago. For people not familiar with Bill, just go and look up the name. Um, He's probably the most successful racing punter of all time because he he worked out how to create a database, a massive database um, with all these algorithms, and he bet accordingly. Um, And he ended up making... When I say millions, I mean literally tens of uh, millions because they've they've, they've got a very big pool over there, a lot of liquidity in the tote. So I would say in Hong Kong, it's far more data driven um, than it is here. To to be fair though, you are talking about two racetracks. You're talking about a a small group of horses, a small bunch of trainers, a small bunch of jockeys. So it would be easier to, uh, I want to say easier, I suppose. Yeah, it would be easier to apply the system and it's more likely to work uh, in that scenario.
0: Would you say, um, due to those sort of cultural differences that you prefer um, to bet in Hong Kong, or actually, seeing as you you know for being an expert on racing in Hong Kong, I would ask you, would you prefer to bet in places where there's a lot more data? Obviously, Hong Kong is sort of a world leader in it, but you can get pretty detailed data um, in Australia, New Zealand, and America. Some might say that there's more you could access there compared to here. So, would you prefer to bet where's more data? And do you think that you lose um, some of your edge if everybody can see what you're seeing in an easily accessible
1: format? Um, yes and yes. Yes, I prefer it if there's more data, and yes, I suppose you, you can lose a, a bit of an angle there. I saw some data recently, actually, only released the, the last few days, so I haven't been able to go over it uh, fully, but uh, it was making the point that people are finding more winners in Hong Kong now, um, and the downside to having that understanding and that knowledge is the average price is, is coming down a, a little bit. But I'd much prefer to have plenty of data. I think it's, it's hugely helpful. If you have a look at the Hong Kong Racing site, Um, I would say it's the best racing or or club-owned racing site anywhere in the world for a punter. It's got everything, whether you're talking about weights of horses, whether you're talking about... I mean, a Stuart's report on a race over there can be like that. It can be like one race over there is like Stuart's report for the entire meeting over here. It has multiple replays. It has replay angles. It has uh, just about anything you can... You can think of as far as preferring to bet in hong kong I, I do like betting in hong kong for a couple of reasons first i'm a great believer that you can only load yourself up with so much work i, I can't bet everywhere because i haven't got time to to, to do the work that's required to, to bet in some sort of you know serious uh manner uh, the other thing i would say too uh you know without touching on too much of a sensitive area, along with Japan, there's no doubt Hong Kong's the cleanest racing in the world. i include Australia in that. I'd certainly include over here. Um, anyway, America, you know, but I, I mean, they they actually go to the point now where they definitely are on the side of caution. You know, jockeys go over there. They only have to ride twice a week. Um, they get the big dollars, but they also know, if they put a foot out of line, what might be a three-week suspension over here or a three-month suspension in Australia, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be gone. They'll, they'll be, I mean, Chris, months, a few years ago, got jailed for basically taking a bit of cash for tips. Now, I'm not saying he deserve to get into trouble, but there's not too many jockeys I know that have ever been jailed for, you know, you know putting their hand under the table and taking a few bob for, for you know, um, giving out tips. But it's a very mm-hmm. clean product. It's a very clean product. And, you know, I look, you don't want to be too critical. Uh, but we've seen recent things, whether it be here, whether it be in Australia, or in America, To tell you. I actually think racing's cleaner than what the average person believes it is, but you'd be very naive to suggest that it's 100% ridge ditch.
0: Yeah, I, I, can, I do completely agree um, with that. Uh, and the recent case in Ireland, I think, does raise an awful lot of questions, um, which hopefully the IHRB will tackle. Um, in the fullness of time, um, at the moment, I should say, at the moment of recording, Charles Burns has lodged appeal um, against his six-month suspension. Um, what, what you tend to find, William, if I could just um, quickly, what
1: you tend yeah. to find, where you've got, uh, not that the money, uh, the prize money is that bad in Ireland, but you tend to find where you've got high prize money in places like Australia and America. People are trying to find an edge, i.e. steroids, that sort of thing. They're trying to find an edge to win, whereas where you've got low prize money, that's when you start to get problems with non triers for obvious reasons. People are trying to bring handicap marks down or they're trying to set a horse up for a pump. Now, people can sit there and debate that all the like. They can be offended if they want to be, but that is actually fact. History shows us that. High price money means that you get people like in America, they have a drug problem there, we know they do. Uh, hopefully they'll get on top of it. In Australia, which is probably, Hong Kong aside, is, is, is probably the most uh, strictly uh, governed jurisdiction I've ever seen. They still have problems with trainers trying to find an edge, whether it be through you know, Darren Weir and, and a Jigger, one of the leading trainers in, in Australia, and whether it be with performance enhancing uh, illegal medications. And yeah, as I said, that's that's something we've seen throughout the, the history of racing.
0: I don't think there'd be many people who disagree with you. Um, I personally do fully agree. Um, and again, I, I really think it'll be interesting to see um, what comes out, especially if there's um, more judgments on that appeal in the recent case involving um, Charles Burns in that case in Ireland. Um, just on punting in general, would there be any sort of. Um, piece of advice that you'd have um for punters because everybody especially lots of people who've been guests on betting people previously they have their own methods they have their own lessons Um, let's take three from you what are the three sort of punting do's actually that you'd want other people to take
1: Well, I think you've got to use a method that that works for you, and believe you me, if if you're just starting out, you'll probably try one or two that don't work, uh, you know, learn your lesson along the way. Um, Anybody that I've seen that's been successful, whether it's just making, you know, playing percentages and making a few extra quid or or people who make a living off it, and I know a few, the two things they definitely have, the two ingredients would be, firstly, they've got a lot of control, and secondly, they put a lot of time into it. It's like most things in life, the harder you work, the more time you put into it. The luckier you 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 get, so that's one thing. Well, that are the two things I would say. You've, you've really got to be controlled, and you've really got to put a lot of time into it and do your research. Um, the other thing is too, you've got to understand that. I suppose a little bit left field. I don't think. People allow for enough variables when they're looking at the race. Or well, they might, maybe they don't understand the variables. Uh, look, a really easy one to understand. A good example is: let's have a look at Frankel v. Zoffany in St. James's Palace. Now, Zoffany finished whatever round about a pound behind him, just behind him. Does there, is there anyone out there that actually thinks that Zoffany is within a pound of Frankel? On, the, on their best form. So now you've got to have a look at, well, why did he finish so close? Now, the reason I mention this one is because it's very obvious and it's very easy. The ride given to the Frankel that day was far too aggressive and, and the ride, I'm not trying to knock time. I, I, I kind of get the feeling they might've been after a, a bit of a rating. I, I don't know if there was a conversation before the race, but uh, yeah, it's very odd to take off in, in a race like that when, when, when he did without needing to. But the bottom line is the ride was too aggressive and that's why he got as close as, as, as what he did. You've got to allow for variables, and the more variables um, you can allow for, the more variables you can understand. A little bit like Bill Benton, you, know, you have a look at the variables he was allowing for. By goodness, um, the better you'll
0: you'll be. I, I I would suggest anyway. And just last but not least, um, you've got a favourite sort of jurisdiction to bet in, which we know is Hong Kong. Do you actually have um, a favourite type of contest you like to bet in? Uh, we've had people on this program before who have had their favorite systems and methods and also favorite races. I was just wondering, is there a particular type of race you like betting more than others?
1: To be fair, I also like betting in America because the handicap system over there is nearly non-existent. So you can sort of take it out of the play. I'll be honest, I know it's a little bit boring. I, I tend to find the higher the grade, the more reliable the horse and the more likely you are to, to get uh, what you might call a, an honest race. By that, I mean, uh, yeah, the tempo will be right. It won't be too quick or it won't be too slow because these are good horses. I do prefer the higher end. I prefer the higher end over here as well. I, if you have a look at the article I put up on ATR in Hong Kong, they, they start, the bottom grade over there as a class five. Every horse, if it's a debutante, if it hasn't started anywhere else in the world, will start on a mark of 52, which is a class four handicap. They, they, you don't, don't have a maiden over there and they go up through the grades. Now, you know, occasionally you'll see I'll nap one in a class four, very rarely in a class five, um, but most of, the, most of the naps, I mean, some of the meetings don't have anything higher than the class two anyway, but most of the naps, if, if they're available are in the higher class races, or it's a progressive horse, you can see coming through the grades. It's just gone from a, a class four to a class three, it's gone up eight pounds, it's landed at the foot of the weights in class three. In your opinion, that horse is gonna be going around in class two company in the not-too-distant future, when you know at the foot of the weights in a Class 3, it, it should be winning that if it gets the right sort of race set up. So, look, to, to answer your question, I prefer the higher grades. It doesn't have to be a Grade 1, certainly doesn't have to be a Grade 1, but I just prefer betting on horses that I, I, I consider are fairly good horses with a bit of quality about them.
0: And last but never least, um, just to ask on this point, um, but would you say... Um, when you think about all the sort of different uh, elements to racing around the world, um, would you say generally that a better punting experience can be found in one place over another, or do you think it's the sort of thing that all evens out? And actually another question I've just thought of, what's your best betting memory?
1: My best betting memory, to answer that, I can tell you now, because I was only 17 at the time, so I better be careful what I say. I didn't have my jockey licence. I dropped in and out a little bit because of my weight problems. And I was riding a horse called Double Dandy Trackwork, and he'd won a couple of races out in what they call the provincial area um, outside of Sydney. Then he put in a couple of horse spins. And I remember the boss, Harold Riley, who was an ex-New Zealand trainer, a very good horseman, he decided to give him basically a month off. And uh, then we sort of worked him for a week or two with a slow work, and we gave him a gallop at Warwick Farm in Sydney. And I, I was fortunate, especially track work, I rode some good horses. I know it's like that old saying, it was just like sitting in a Ferrari, it was incredible. And I came back, I said to Harold G, I think we might have to have a few quid on this on the weekend, you know? This was a gallop on the Wednesday um, and I'll try to cut this short, but I've got to tell you a story because it's quite a nice story. My um, dear grandmother, you know, uh, bookmaking and owned a couple of horses and that type of thing along the way. I I rang her up and she was still alive at the time. I said, Look, there's one going around the ground we've done riding around on Saturday. I I reckon it can probably win. And it's 33 to 1 on the tissue. The paper used to come out early back then. do you want to come out to the races? So I grabbed her and we got caught in traffic. Now we worked out, and I'll, I'll be honest, it was just going back in the eighties. We we're gonna have $200 on the horse. We we're gonna pair it up with another horse she liked in the race, take the to win and run second, to pair them in the field in the trifecta or tricast. So I picked her up and the idea I was gonna to go to the bookmates. Baker's expecting to get 33 to one. Um, anyway, we got to the races late, but We got there in time and I had to run, and it was a long way to the bookmaker's ring, but the tote windows were a lot closer, so I just ran straight. Because yeah. I could hear, I think it was Ian Craig saying, you're loading up. Put the 200 on the nose and of dandy. Took the, the trifecta or the tricast double dandy. I forget the other horse's name. To win and run second the field for third. Never saw the race because still walking out to the front. Heard the call. And Double Dandy goes on to win the race. This other horse that she picked out to run second and some of 33 to one squibs run third. And I'm thinking, great, 33 to one, 200 on. You know, we've got we we've got 6, 6, 7K coming back here. Got the trifecta for a couple of times. Then I've heard them call out the tote dividends, 244 to one. So I picked up nearly 50,000 there. The trifecta's paid a tick up 30,000. I've got it going twice. Um, probably shouldn't say this on here, but I'm sure they can't take the money back now. I was only 17, so I gave the tickets to my grandmother. So I think you better collect this. Um, so that, that's the best punting story I've got. Had a fairly good one on um, a couple of horses that got a, a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, you know, but there's, there's been some hard luck stories
0: along the way as well. absolute classic betting people tell. Thank you so much for your time um, in part two, Tim Carroll, and to everybody watching this, especially from Twitter, tomorrow we're going to ask him all of your questions. Hello, and welcome back to part three of Betting People with Tim Carroll. Now, I'm most excited about this part and you getting to see it because I asked you for questions to give to Tim and so many of you replied with such great, great questions. So we'll pose them to him in a moment, but I did want to ask you, Tim, as somebody who's worked in racing all around the world, um, just about a couple of things um, to do with the future of the industry, Um, namely uh, how, can racing attract a new generation of fans, um, given that, of course, the type of person around the world that watches sports is changing and doing so pretty rapidly, and what we can do to get more people of different backgrounds into racing. and, And I'd include the racing media in that, and I wondered if you had any thoughts.
1: It is a difficult one. Um, obviously, we're talking about marketing here, and I, I don't confess to being a marketeer, but we've got to make it more attractive, uh, more attractive to people who don't go racing. We've got to find a way to, to have people come, and once once people come, you get the, the natural investment from the attendance. Uh, hopefully, it'll you know, potentially leading to ownership, and, and then of course you you get the punting dollar as well. Um, I look. I, I know it's a, a really topical debate at the moment that certainly splits people down the middle but i've got a feeling the whip's going to go i'm not saying i necessarily agree with it having been a horseman myself i think these days with the whips you've got and if you hit a horse correctly are you not hitting on the ribs or the hip i don't think it hurts them at all but perception is everything and the perception is that people are out there whipping a horse to make it go quicker And in today's society, that just doesn't sit too well. So I think we're going to have to have a serious look at that. And I think it's inevitable that the whip will be gone, whether it's in a year, whether it's in 20 years, I don't know. Um, I think the other thing is we do need to... promote. I'm not trying to be negative because, you know, it's always easier to say when you're not the person doing it. It's easy to be negative about people and jobs they're doing. But I think we do need to look at ways to better promote the sport. I remember when Frankel won the, the Queen Anne, I had to go back 11 pages. To read about it. That performance that day is one of the greatest performances we've ever seen on turf. Now, to give you an example of a different mindset in Australia, Black Caviar wasn't even on the back page because she was on the front page for that Royal Ascot meeting. They actually opened up um, an area down near Town Hall in Melbourne. Melbourne, that time of year, is freezing. It would have been, I don't know what time the race was on, but it would have been like 1 or 2 a.m. Uh, Australian time and they turned up in their droves, even though we've got, everyone's got pay TV in Australia, all the clubs and pubs have got pay TV, but they still turned up in this cold weather in the middle of Melbourne to watch it on big screens to have a a get together to watch, you know, the queen of the Australian turf uh, taking on the the best from Europe um, over here. And that just goes to show you the different mentality. I suppose that the problem we've got over here, it's like with anything like that, is we're not working from ground zero. It's already a well-established industry, and it is what it is. And trying to sort of market it in a different way and to bring people around that have never come around before, it's going to be difficult, but we have to work hard at it. Um, and I suppose the, the, the other thing I would say, and we see a lot more of it now, it's a lot better. I'm a great believer that people want to hear from the players. I mean, when someone scores a goal in football, you want to hear from that player afterwards. Mm-hmm. When Usain Bolt won the 100 metres, we want to hear from him afterwards. So when jockeys and trainers, and most of them to be fair, are really good now. So I don't want this taken the wrong way, but some still aren't. And I just don't get it. If you're making a living out of this industry, why would you not want to promote it? Why would you not want to push it forward? Um, you know, for, for future generations, I nearly think it's your obligation to, and I don't have much time for anybody in that that's not prepared to do that. And to be fair, I mean, honestly, overall, people don't want to hear from me. I'm just a conduit. They want to hear from the jockeys and the trainers and the owners. As far as the other point goes, um, as far as having more, di- more, more diversity in racing, I think it's something that absolutely needs to happen. And always, These things always come back to education if you, if you want to take it down to basic levels. I think what what I'd like to see, and there, there might even be something like that out there, but I haven't seen it. And if that's the case, if it is out there and I haven't seen it, then it is a problem, I'd like to see like a, an inclusion council that that, that represents all uh, all backgrounds, because then you get you, you get that representation, you get that feedback that's going to be far more uh, active. Um, the other thing I, I would say, I'm. I'm a believer that you should empower people of underrepresented groups. Now, I know some people will say, well, that's negative racism or it's a reverse racism or even if you're talking about genders. But a good example of this is the, you know, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, they they gave um, the lady riders an allowance in, in France. Now, I, I get it. I understand. Even some of the girls were saying, well, hang on. you know, We want to be treated as equals. We don't need the allowance. But if you looked at the, the hard facts, the bottom line is the girls over there weren't getting rides. They were working as hard as the boys. They get up early in the morning. They're riding out. Then they're having three or four rides a month on 50 to one squibs that can't possibly win. Now you don't need to be a genius to work out. These girls are gonna drop out of the industry very quickly. They gave them the allowance. What have we got now? We've got girls over there riding winners on a regular basis. The the proof's in the numbers. It has worked. So I think we need to empower people of underrepresented uh, groups. And I think as far as the the media goes, whether it be uh, employing people in the front office, whether it be employing people who work on air, we need to avoid tokenization. We need a, a good representation right across the board. Um, but you know, look, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I've never understood the problem. when I say I've never understood it, I, I don't understand why people have a, a problem in this area. I mean, I, I come from a fairly diverse background. I've got an Italian and Scottish heritage. I was born in Australia. I've got a, a half sister who's got an Indonesian father, for goodness sake. So I've just never understood it,
0: but, you know. Um, Some really interesting food for thought. I should just add, not wanting to contradict you at all, the BHA does have a diversity steering group, um, very similar to sort of the inclusion board, I think, that you mentioned. Um, And an add on question for that actually do you think a female jockey's allowance would work um, similarly well in other jurisdictions as it has done in France? You know, I, I find it personally a bit difficult to see that sort of thing flying in England or Ireland. Um, but would it, be, would it be feasible elsewhere, do you think? Well, the first thing to say is I'm glad you, you mentioned that about the BHA.
1: I'm glad to hear that that's, uh, that's happening. As far as being feasible, uh, no, I, I, the thing is, I don't necessarily think it's needed over here. We're still behind where we need to be. Um, if you go, if you, if you have a look at, and again, I'm only using this Australia and New Zealand as an example because I'm familiar with, with the jurisdiction. But if you have a look at New Zealand, I think uh, Lady Riders have won three of the last four titles over there. They're, they're well in front of everyone on this on this front. Australia, it really has come on over the last, say, 20 years. I mean, Jamie Carr will probably win the, the Melbourne's, uh, Melbourne's premiership. It's a state-to-state premiership uh, over this year, and girls are riding a lot of winners over there. We're still behind that over here, but we've certainly, even in the 16 years I've been here, we've certainly come a long way on that front. The interesting thing is as well is, <clears throat> I don't want to speak for the individuals, but... Um, they can speak for themselves but if you have a look at social media a lot of the leading female riders say they don't want it anyway because they find it a bit disrespectful it's like well, hang on are you saying that i'm i need a two three pound allowance to, to compete with with the boys hell no so i don't necessarily think we need it over here to be honest
0: okay and now going on to twitter questions um which i just i cannot i cannot wait to get into this because i've been looking forward to them ever since i got them um gonna start with this Belzer so from sam um should be on screen now which is the tastiest crustacean i believe you've got something to show us with this haven't you okay.
1: It's funny, you mentioned it <laughs> a minute ago. It's, it's what, um, it, I would say Morton Bay bug, for people who don't know, I love my seafood. It's it's sort of my go-to meal. A uh, morton Bay bug is sort of like, a I suppose it's like a, a little ugly lobster, if you like. Uh, that, um, I'm pretty sure they're only found in Australia, and only a certain part of Australia, but I thought a lot of people don't know what they are. Hopefully you can see that. That's a couple of Morton Bay bugs on the barbecue. Um, I would put those in front of, any other seafood but by goodness there's no such thing as a bad seafood I'll eat anything I don't care oysters uh, sea snails obviously prawns and fish and lobster and crab you name it I'll eat it if it comes out of the ocean
0: a little homage to Ben Keith here um but recommend us a place to go for seafood in the UK I'll give you I'll I'll give you a minute we'll give you a minute to do a quick seafood review
1: yeah, I I, I I tell you what, I went to somewhere recently that was really nice, and I can't remember the, the name of the place. I need to go <laughs> and have a my holiday snaps, and then I could I could look it up. It was it was so good actually, um, and if you give me a moment, I might even sort of send you a text, and you can you can mention. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll do we'll do that um uh, we'll do that after because uh, we got quite a few questions to get through. Um, Boring Noel Garbutt, what, what a name that is. So many of you have such no, great names no. on, on that website. Um, He can't believe um, that he's only just seen this. Well, you're in time, Noel. And um, who's your favourite jockey, Tim? Uh, to be
1: honest, I, I wouldn't have a favourite. I like a lot of jockeys. I've always been, like a lot of people, I've always been a big fan of Frankie de And I'm not just talking about because he, he's such a lively character. If you, if you watch as you know, much racing as, as a lot of us do and do as much forms as I do, he is just a brilliant rider. And, and one of the things I like him, it's a little bit like Zach Perton in, in, in Hong Kong. He's got plenty of conviction. I see a lot of riders, they get instructions and they go and stick to those instructions, even if it's to the detriment of the way the race sets up. Whereas Frankie's got the confidence to say, stuff this for a game of cards. We're going to ride this a little bit upside down or we're going to ride it a little bit differently. Um, And then he's got all the other attributes as well. He's beautiful in the saddle. He picks a horse up very nicely. He's a great judge of pace. Uh, Yeah, he's just got, he's the all-round package. So he'd be one of my favourites. Zach Purton, who I just mentioned, I I don't even think Zach would mind me saying this. He's got a touch of arrogance about him and a lot of leading sports people do and it serves him well. So he would be another one. Um, In Australia, I've always been a big fan of Damien Oliver, who's been a rare, around for a, a hell of a long time and if you're going back a few years look i could probably name a couple of Australian jockeys you wouldn't know so they wouldn't move, mean anything but like everyone Lester Piggott and again you know you have that sort of arrogant uh, confidence um, and the thing about Lester I was riding at the time when he came over to Australia and he had sort of this really short stirrup uh, especially at the time which stirrups have gone up and up and up over the years and he used to stand up quite tall in the saddle compared to what we were doing over there and the idea being you'd, you'd get wind resistance by crouching down and i remember when he was asked about it he said what he was doing he was standing up tall and putting his weight straight down the, the wither and the front legs of the horse and that allowed the horse who gets the power from the back end obviously uh allowed them to to be stronger so i sort of tried it a, a few times in, in track work before i did on race day and he was absolutely spot on, you know, as you would expect. Um, so uh, I've always been a big fan of Lester Bigger and anyone that can be riding derbies, in the, you know, derby when in their 50s. Um, you know, and back then that's when 50 was 50, whereas now they say, you know, 50 is the new 40. Uh, and when you look at his record, I mean, how, how, could you not, uh, how could you not respect the
0: man? A wonderful tale there. Uh, moving on to Simon Lovell, who asks... What part of the country is that flash pad by the river that Tim lives in? And secondly, with Prince Coloured Abdullah passing, is the future of UK and Irish group ones that they'll become a Cornwall benefit. Um, First things first, where are you, Tim? If you don't mind us asking.
1: I'm in a little country lane. I lived in London for a few years. a great city, but I understand it a little bit too much, being a country boy from Australia. um, So I bought this place uh, 10 years ago now, and I'm in a, a country lane Uh, just outside of a village called Great Brickhill which unless you live in Great Brickhill probably means nothing to anybody it's basically halfway in between Leighton Buzzard and Woburn and and, and why it looks a bit spectacular is it's it it is actually an island that's named the property the water comes down the back and it splits either side and it joins up on a little bit of property I've got on the other side and just out the front there's a road with two little bridges so um, it's called the island. And when I, when I tell people back in Australia, uh, I own an island, they kind of think like Hamilton Island or something like that, you know, something like Richard Branson would own. It's not quite that sort of island, but yeah, look at it. It's a nice
0: little joint. And um, just to give a bit of flavour, where would be your nearest race course? Uh, probably Toaster, I think it's
1: about a half an hour drive away. And sorry, I didn't answer the question about Judmont. Um,
0: <laughs> we were going to go on to that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Do you go on,
1: sorry. Well, I, I look, I hope it will continue the way it is. I, I, I saw an interview that Matt Chapman did with uh, Lord T- uh, Teddy Grimthorpe, and it sort of gave me a little bit of hope at, at what he said. Well, you know, Matt asked him the question. He said, the people, the, the, the family, they they know how important racing was uh, to to, Lord, uh, to um, uh, Prince Khalid Abdullah. Um, so he's very hopeful that it will continue in the same vein. And, and when you have a look at how successful they've been, the champions they've had over the years, Let's fingers crossed, let's hope they do.
0: Absolutely. Um just going on actually from the idea of monopolization um this is brilliant from Loretta Chance um asking specifically about the Cheltenham Festival is the festival getting too monopolized by the big three after taking 18 out of the 28 contests last season now on the screen we've got a list that um they've put together of Festival's from 2015, um, it goes from 11 out of 28 races to 18 out of 28 races across that sort of five-year time span. Um, And I was just wondering, do you think, as a jumping fan, that's now the case that the big three trainers, one presumes Nicky Henderson, Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins, um, are dominating the festival to the point where they're monopolising it?
1: I think the first thing you've got to say, trainer's job is to train winners. And, and all three of those should be you know, given a pat on the back for being successful as they are. So what I'm about to say is certainly not a reflection or uh, any sort of negativity towards uh, those trains. But if you're talking about marketing sport, absolutely. Uh, it, it makes it really difficult. The one thing about a horse race, and one thing about any sport uh, that, that you need to sell it is passion. And what drives passion is is the stories within within the sport and for us within racing. And I've said for a long time now that I I like the idea of a valuable Group 1 handicaps like we have in Australia and like they have elsewhere. Um, Because it it gives the... the, the, I, I know it's difficult these days. I mean, it's not an easy race to win the Melbourne Cup, but I can tell you now, you and me, if we went and bought a horse, we'd be far more chance of winning the Melbourne Cup than we would the Derby. Um, it gives the smaller player or the middle-sized player or a syndicate more chance of winning the race. And people love that. They love seeing the underdog win. A little bit like only a few years ago, Prince of Penzance winning the Melbourne Cup. Now, what a wonderful advertisement that was for horse racing right around the world, not just in Australia, because you had a 101 outsider who wasn't fancied to beat all these wonderful European horses and a few uh, wonderful local horses. And then you had a, a lady rider aboard, And she still to this day is the only lady rider anywhere in the world to ride her nation's premier race. Um, So I I do think that if you've got the same two, three, four people dominating all the time, it is to the detriment of the sport, but it's a difficult one because
0: that's their job. They're just doing their job so well. Absolutely fair enough there. Um, I should add, um, I mean, the festival this year is not all that far away. So we will see what happens in the future. Um, Regarding uh, dominance of a particular race, Uh, John Kennedy asks, what's his opinion on the dominance of British and Irish trained horses in the Melbourne Cup and who's king of the Hong Kong tipping, you or John Blance? Well, I'm a great
1: uh, believer in international racing. I I think it's the way forward. So I've got no problem with the Europeans going down there. I, I think the one issue you've got, you've got to be a little bit careful. You don't detach yourself from your local audience because... The Australians and the the Kiwis, they need someone to to root for. They want their their local horses in there. And and when the Europeans turn up and all of a sudden you've got 12 horses you've never heard of before, and then of the other 12, seven or eight are ex-Europeans anyway, it kind of feels like you you haven't got a dog in the fight. If you have a look at the... The Long Jeans ratings came out the other day and there was an Australian race in the top 10. Normally the the Cox Plate would make it... one or two of the sprints. But the, the take out from that, when I was looking at the Australian side of it, even without the Everest, which doesn't qualify because it's not a, a Group one because it's a buy-in race. Uh, the top five sprints in the world are still at Australia. And I, I think that's a, that's a reflection of where Australian racing is at. Uh, I Look, I, I love a big sprint as much as I do a two mile race or a mile race. So uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't really got a preference. Um, mm. But I do think it's a shame that we're at the stage now where Australia have world-class horses, except for the occasional exception like a Winx or so you
0: think are, are basically all sprinters. Moving on, um, although the Anglo-Australian theme is still very much alive, um, question here from the legendary Dave Bradshaw, um, who, by the way, is doing brilliant work. Thank you very much, Dave. We're honoured to have you asking a question here on Bedding People. Um, Should we move the Stand to Melbourne and the Melbourne Cup to Newmarket? Um, I'm guessing he's been a bit facetious, but I'd be interested to hear your answer. Well the, the problem with that,
1: Dave would be that if the Melbourne Cup came to Newmarket it would be worth two Bob overnight. So you'd completely destroy the race, no one would want to turn up for it. If the Kingstand went to Australia, to be honest with you, it'd end up being engulfed in the in the um, programme over there with all the other sprints. I think we'd better keep it the way it is. I, I like seeing the Europeans uh, who go down to Melbourne. The other thing is well, um yeah, you know, something I do like to see if the Kingstand and the Diamond Jubilee at Royal Ascot, as we saw with Blue Point, as we saw with Swaz here, and as we've seen with other horses have attempted double like take over target miss andretti i just think it it works so well to have that group one five furlong race on the tuesday group one six furlong race on the saturday and see you know hopefully the king stand winner then turn up on saturday and and, and try to take out the double so i know dave's having a little bit of a laugh there but no because they're both wonderful uh, races that serve a purpose and, and are doing absolutely fine the way they are
0: And moving on still, we have a question here from Harry Haskell, who asks, what is the most embarrassing moment he's had on Sky Sports Racing?
1: oh yeah to, to be honest i've been fairly lucky um, some of the viewers might disagree I, I, I don't think i've made too many gaffes not bad ones I'm about mixing the words up here and there and, and, and whatnot but I, I do remember i mean it wouldn't have been on there I, I remember what happens is when you when you hook up you've got two two packs i normally put them in my suit jacket pocket some people put them on the belt
0: <laughs> same same you get clipped up on your your label and um it's in the little pocket um to transmit to gallery or whatever absolutely spot
1: on now what i did one time is i went to the loo and forgot to turn my mic off and then these mics are pretty powerful they pick up everything so needless to say I'm sure the gallery weren't overly impressed um i, I suppose the, the other one is i, I remember um I was, I was a couple of months ago this it's very unusual you get a fly in a studio even in australia let alone over here where we don't have that many of them but was, I, was, I was on three nights in the bounce and about every night there was this one fly, and he looked like an australian fly i mean it was a fair size And he just turned up and decided, I'm trying to talk in your life. There's no delay at Sky, so you're live. And this thing is flying here and here and here. Three nights. The third night, when we went to a break, the thing was right in front of me. So I tried to grab him like this. You know, I'd have a a decent, I'll I'll, I'll go at him. And I I still missed him. Um, And I was watching, I think, get in a a week later with uh, with the lads. And, um, of course, they put the clip up on there. They hadn't told me. I I looked a bit of an idiot. You know, it looked like I was sort of, you know, I don't know some sort of washed up boxer that didn't know how to you know, throw a punch, just uh, you know, punching at the air sort of thing. But yeah, look, to be honest with you, I, I don't think I've had anything too embarrassing happen at Sky. Maybe one or two things in my radio days uh, back in Australia, uh, but nothing too bad at Sky.
0: Um, love this from Colin Locke. Where do you buy those Cuban cigars? <laughs> I'd love to say yeah, Cuba, and I'd love to say they were for Mint. Um, I've had a few
1: <laughs> Cubans. The the one that was online, I think it was one online the other day. I, I had a couple of days off, and it, it snowed, so I built a snowman out the back on the deck, and... Um, I was having a couple of couple of ales. Uh, as I said, it sort of was a day off, and I, after a couple of ales, I, I tend to now and then pull. Up. I, I would never condone smoking. I don't smoke, but I don't mind. Um, I don't mind having a cigar now and then. I'm usually on special occasions, which a special occasions is anything from about six beers inwards. Uh, in so yeah, <laughs> they, they weren't Cubans. They were actually they were um, cigars. I picked up a, a small box of cigars. When I was um, at the races in Saratoga, and that was the last one of them, I, I pulled it out, and, and they weren't overly expensive. I don't know what brand they were, but they were quite nice. Although, you know, um, I'm not—I I don't confess to being a cigar expert.
0: Um, and this from Zach Piper, which I think is probably going to be close to the last question, or maybe even the last question. I absolutely adore it. So, let's get right into that. Do you think the tab? Or similar could work in English pubs. Um, I will let you explain what TAB stands for.
1: Yeah, it's a tote. It's a totalised agency board, so it's a tote system. And uh, I think where Zach's going with that in Australia, you have a a betting terminal in every pub, every sports club, and it's, it's a wonderful setup because. What will happen if you've got a sports club, and there's plenty of them in Australia, in the sports club, you will have a a betting shop, as we call them over here, or a tab, as they call them over there. You will have restaurants, you will have snooker tables, you'll have poker machines, you'll have a room set up for the kids. So the beauty about all of that is, is you can literally have a family day out or evening out. Everyone can go to, and dad can still go and have a bet without sort of, you know, over here, it's like sneaking into a betting shop where, you know, the only people in there are having a bet, and it's mostly, you know, uh, adult men. Um, I think it would be very difficult to. to uh, I, I think it'd be very difficult to get it set up over here. But yeah, of course, it could work, and it would lift the profile of racing. I think it'd be wonderful if they did it. I mentioned it years ago to, to um, people who sort of looked at me a little bit, um, a little bit like I was crazy. But it, it gives you a different experience if you have having a bet. I, uh, yeah, you know, one of the best betting shops you'll ever sit in is um, in Bondi. There's a betting shop there at the RSL, so you, you go and sit in the betting shop. You're over the, this world famous pool at icebergs. You're looking out over Bondi Beach, having a bet on the horses. You can buy your Morton Bay bugs from over here. You can have a few beers. Wonderful. So, do I think do I think it could work? I Absolutely, would work over here. But, but good luck trying to set it up and getting
0: the powers to be to sign off on it. Um, I agree with that. Uh, I should also say as somebody who's been to many a PMU bar in France, it is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, thoroughly, thoroughly recommended. Um, I believe actually that sadly means we're at the end of our wonderful, wonderful question and answer session with you. Um, Tim, thank you so, so much for everything. and being an absolute star, no pun intended, um, for us on Betting People this week. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, And thank you all for the questions and for watching and listening if you're listening. Um, Stay tuned. We've got lots of great guests coming in the future, which we will release over the next couple of months or so. And don't forget, of course, you can find him on Sky Sports Racing and you can look at our Betting People back catalogue by simply heading upwards and rightwards, I believe, and clicking on betting people. But for now, thank you for watching and goodbye.
1: You can follow Star Sports on Twitter at starsports underscore bet, our Facebook page at Star Bet, and also view all our latest videos on YouTube at Star starsports. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.